Let's turn to two passages in the scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, Hebrews 9, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to be precise, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, the living center of the Hebrews homily, geographical center, the literary center, the living center. Today, as a nation, we're on the cusp of the celebration of Memorial Day, as you all know, and as we've indicated. And we certainly pay our respects to those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice on battlefields across this world and on our own continent over the centuries. And we pay our respects to all of those here who are either veterans or active service members of the United States Armed Forces. And yet we are more than a nation here. We are the holy nation. We are a kingdom of priests. As such, we look beyond to the Lord of the armies who paid the ultimate sacrifice and was killed in action in securing our reconciliation securing our eternal redemption, and did so by his blood. And so we will be going from this message today and segueing neatly into the communion service. All are welcome to participate, of course, follow the lead of our ushers. And this is a time which is solemn in its recollection and joyful in its anticipation solemn in the recollection of the crucifixion of our Savior and joyous in the anticipation of the second appearing of our great archpriest who will come with salvation to a waiting creation and an intensely waiting humanity. We're going to begin by saying God is good and You've heard me quote this individual many times. He's kind of shrouded in mystery. His name is Pseudo-Dionysius, otherwise known as Dionysius the Areopagite. He took his name from one of the very few converts that came away from Paul's Mars Hill sermon in Acts 17.34, along with a woman named Damaris and Dionysius and a few others joined Paul. Most of the philosophers rejected his message out of hand, laughed him off the stage, as it were. And there is, in the 5th or 6th century, a man who took the name of Dionysius, the Areopagite, or the person who was converted at the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill. And so he's called Pseudo-Dionysius simply because he used that pseudonym for his writings. I've quoted this many times, and it's always applicable, always fresh, always powerful. It's always kind of a summation of everything that I believe in Jesus Christ. And so he wrote this in his famous book called The Divine Names. And this is an excerpt from The Divine Names, chapter 4. And it says this, let us move on now to the name Good, that's capital G-O-O-D, the name Good, which the sacred writers have preeminently set apart for the supra-divine God from all other names. They call the divine subsistence itself goodness. The, this essential good, capital G-O-O-D, by the very fact of its existence, extends goodness into all things. The very essence of God is his goodness, his benevolence, his beneficence, and the ultimate goal of God in us, in the apostolate, in the diaconate, in the new covenant community, is that we become agents of that benevolence, agents of that beneficence, mostly with a message of reconciliation, but also with goods that even include material goods for those in need, as we will learn. The way that this supra-divine God, he called the God that we call the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the supra-divine God, 
because of course, according to Paul, there were others called gods, even as there are others called lords. But we know there is one God, even the Father, and one Lord, even our Lord Jesus Christ. So the way that this supra-divine God, who is the essential good, another way of saying God is love, the way he extends his goodness into all things is through the coming of his Messiah, Jesus Christ, the great archpriest. For as we're presently going to see in the very center of the heart of Hebrews, it says, now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things. And I promised in Wednesday's rather central message that I would tackle this subject in our next increment. This is the next increment. First, though, and secondly in our message, we'll compare the sacred text we've looked at of times, I think 10 times of late, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. I'm going to read it very, very briefly, but with five references therein to what we're learning to be the radical alteration of the universal human situation, the radical alteration of the human situation, the universal human situation. I'm going to accentuate five of uses of that in a bracketed commentary. So here's our translation after 10 times. 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us, having judged this. Since one died in inclusive representation of all, then all died. This is the radical alteration of the universal human situation from one of being under sin and under condemnation to becoming the righteousness of God, as we'll see. And he died in inclusive representation of all, so that those who live, which is all, after having died with him, that is, would no longer live themselves. I'm going by the original Greek here. They would no longer live themselves. But he who died in representation of them and was raised would live in them and they, not they themselves, by themselves, in themselves, to themselves, for themselves, but of him, by him, in him, to him, for him, who died in representation of them and was resurrected. So from now on, we know no one now on, we know no one by any natural means of perception or after any superficial characteristic. Even if once we regarded Christ by mere natural means of perception, we no longer perceive him that way. Now we perceive and know him as one God-man, the one God-man, in whom God reconciled the world to himself. That's my commentary. 17. Consequently, if anyone is in Christ, and everyone is now, as all were once in Adam, all are now in Christ. That's the, what we would call the universal alteration of the human situation. The universal alteration of the human situation. Situation. So if anyone is in Christ, and everyone is, because Christ died for all and all died in him, he or she is part of a new creation, just as Christ is the beginning of the creation of God. The old things have passed away. Look, meaning look by faith, not by sight. All things have become new. Again, that's the radical alteration of the universal situation. Now everything is, and that means to the perception of us who walk by faith, everything is perceived and known to be from God, who reconciled us, that's the world, to himself through Christ. This, again, is the radical alteration of the universal situation. The world has been reconciled to God in Christ. It gave us, that's those of us who have made this judgment that one died for all and all died. Those of us who have been awakened by faith to have Christ shine on us and enlighten us. Those whose eyes have been enlightened to see Jesus. Those of us 
whom God came to individually, one by one, in his own time to reveal his son in us. So Paul is saying in verse 18, now everything is perceived to be from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, that's us, the new covenant community, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What is that? The radical alteration of the universal human situation from one of enmity against God to one of being God's friends, not imputing to them their transgressions and has placed in us the message, message logon, the word, the announcement of the reconciliation in us, the new covenant community. Consequently, we are ambassadors. We are an apostolate, as we've been calling it, in behalf of Christ. God making his appeal through us. Please notice this verse 20 because I'm going to hammer that a little bit later. Consequently, we are ambassadors. That's an apostolate in behalf of Christ. God making his appeal through us as we say, in essence, this is the essence of our message, we urge you in behalf of Christ, receive and acknowledge, that is by faith, your reconciliation with God. For in representation of us, the one who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. That's the radical alteration of the universal human situation. My intent is to interweave this passage with Hebrews, and this is the point at which the needle goes from 2 Corinthians into Hebrews in earnest. Look at verse 9. Or chapter 9, verse 11. 9 11. Moffat, who did a study on Hebrews in the 19th century, I believe, said that this was the very center of the text of Hebrews. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come. That's the radical alteration of the universal human situation. A good thing that came with Messiah the Archpriest happens to be the radical alteration to the ultimate infinite good and better of the human situation. And our coming, please notice this because you won't find this in your translation necessarily unless it's a very good one. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come and are coming. That our coming is the radical alteration of the human and creational condition. What's coming? The resurrection of all humanity. As I live, so you will live. Also, Jesus said, the, that's the radical alteration of the human condition, even the bodily condition of mankind for the ultimate infinite good as well as the liberation of all creation from its current slavery to corruption. One thing we have in solidarity with the rest of creation, we're all, in essence, groaning in anticipation, waiting for the liberation, which will come when? In Hebrews 9.28, at the second appearance of our great archpriest, Jesus Christ. So here it is again. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come. That's the radical alteration of the human situation. And our coming, that's the radical alteration yet to come of the human and creational condition. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So God did something about it. He brought about a change of condition of the body, which will Come. It's already previewed in Jesus Christ. It's already come in him. It is yet to come for all of us. The new man's coming, and he's got us all. Through the greater and more complete tent, to finish off the verse, not made by human hands, that is, not of this creation. Now, A.T. Robertson, whom I consult almost with every verse that I study, said this about this passage in Hebrews 9.11, 
He says, having come is the second aorist middle participle of paraginomai, which I won't subject you to. This is the great historic event, he says, that is the crux of history. I agree wholeheartedly, the crux of history. When the Messiah came as archpriest of good things that have come, remember Psalm 145.9, incidentally, which I'm referring to often lately. The Lord is good to everyone. He has compassion on all that he has made. And remember, he shows mercy to all. So this great historic event, again, Ma, uh, Robertson says, is the crux of history. Then he says this, Christ came on the scene and all was changed. He quotes Mr. Moffat, M-O-F-F-A-T-T, which I quoted before. Of the good things to come, there is a Greek construction called ton melanton agathon. You'll see it in print. And then he said, but there are two other manuscripts that are reliable manuscripts that read genomenon rather than melonton. Melonton means yet to come. Gegomenon means already have come. Then he says both aspects are true. Both aspects are true. For Christ is high priest of good things that have already come as well as the glorious future of hope. So he talks about two very significant Greek scholars. One is Westcott, who prefers genomenon, which means have already come, and Moffat prefers melonton, which means yet to come. Robertson's right to say that both are intended. So both in one verse are intended to reveal the radical alteration of the human situation savingly in Christ and what's yet to come is the radical alteration of the human condition, including the very bodily condition. For we are waiting for a Savior from heaven who shall come and change the present shape and form of our bodies and make them conformable to his own soma doxa, his own body of glory. He's going to do this by the same power by which he subjects all things to himself according to Philippians 3.20 to 21. Third, and this is as we approach, we're kind of approaching the Holy of Holies here, we are once again on the road to the Holy of Holies. The Holy Spirit beyond an exegesis of Hebrews is revealing to us the road to the Holy of Holies, which is the immediate presence of God the Father. Jesus Christ died, the righteous one for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, that he would bring us to God. I am the way, that's the road, literally, hados, the truth and the life. No man, no one, no human being comes to the Father except through me. So the third part of the message, third gear if you want to call it, once again we'll see with the eyes of our heart with the Holy Spirit, the Lord the Spirit, the Spirit of grace, is making clear to us. And it's something that he's going to make clear to all, namely the road to the Holy of Holies. That road is a blood trail that leads through the torn curtain of Jesus' flesh into the Holy of Holies of the immediate presence of the thrice holy God. Again, the word for road is hodos, H-O-D-O-S in the Greek. You'll see it in print is the same word that Jesus used when he declared, I am, ego eimi, ego eimi, used oftentimes in John. I am the way, ego eimi, I am the bread of life, ego eimi, I am the true vine, ego eimi, I am the light of the world. We're interested here in John 14, 6, ego eimi, I am, hodos, the road, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Jesus is the road to the Father, to the heavenly holy of holies. The road is the true king's highway. The king's highway is, again, hodo basilike, the road of the king, the highway of the king. It's found twice in the scriptures in Numbers 20.17 and Numbers 21.22, That was a road that Israel went to the king of Edom and said, let's ride, may we travel on the king's highway. We won't 
take a left or a right. We'll just go on that road to our destination. The king of Edom disallowed it, refused it. And so there was a little war as a result. Also in Numbers 21-22, they asked the king of Sihon if they could travel on the king's highway, a road through the wilderness. It was refused, disallowed both times. The king's highway, both uses, disallowed. But the road we're talking about is the true king's highway, the true Hados Basilike, the highway of the king. And it's the road paved with Jesus' poured out blood, Matthew 26, 28. It passes through the torn curtain of his flesh. Hebrews 10, 20 boldly makes that statement, and nowhere else is it made so boldly, that we go into the Holy of Holies through the curtain, that is to say, Christ's flesh. We have confidence by his blood, Hebrews 10, 19, we pass through the torn curtain of his flesh. This is my body torn for you, we could say accurately. We could say that without fear of censure from the Lord. This is my body, Jesus said, holding the bread, breaking it. This is my body, which is torn for you. It says in the Greek, which is for you. But if you put Hebrews 10.20 with it, torn for you. After he arose from the dead and went before Thomas, he said, look at me, look at my hands and my feet. Why? I am the torn curtain into the Holy of Holies. See, my flesh, it's torn here, here, my feet, my side. I am the curtain torn to reveal the way into the Holy of Holies. His blood was shed at Calvary. And blood being shed is a metaphor that precisely takes us to the Levitical cultus where the blood of animals was slain literally to depict the redemptive, reconciling, propitiatory, and expiational, efficacious, universal death of Jesus Christ for all humankind and to secure liberation for all that he has made. For God is good to everyone and has compassion on all that he has made. Psalm 145.9. God who is the ultimate good by his very essence and existence extends his goodness into all that he has made. And that's you and I. That's why Jesus Christ became sin that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. And so the road which Israel wanted to travel, called the King's Highway, in Numbers 20.17 and Numbers 21.22, was disallowed. They were disallowed to travel on that road. We are not only allowed, but beckoned to travel on the true King's Highway. The road is paved, again, with Jesus' poured out blood. It passes through the torn curtain of his flesh. In Matthew 26, as we'll see in the communion service, my body and my blood. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Many equals all. First Timothy 2.6 with Matthew 26.28 with Mark 10.45 with Matthew 20.28. 20, and Romans 5.19 for that matter in connection with Romans 5.18. And so ego amy, I am the way. But he also says, Ego Amy, I am the bread of life which has come down from heaven. And that bread is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. The life of the world. My body is my flesh. My flesh is the bread that came down from heaven which I give for the life of the world. The universal alteration of the world's situation before God which can only be perceived by faith and a faith that works by love toward all mankind incidentally so the one mediator and many mediators this is fourth gear the one mediator and many mediators where do we say there is only one mediator between God and man but where do we also say that there are many mediators we say it this way there is one mediator between God and all human beings. There is one God, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one, and one died for all. There is but one mediator between God and all human beings, and that's the man, 
Christ Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. But there's a multitude of mediators between the man Christ Jesus and all men, all of humanity. I'm going to say that again because that's a nuanced saying. It's a new saying. It's shocking. It's striking. It's not autocratic. It's made under the government of the hegemonic Holy Spirit. And so I'll say it again. There's but one mediator between God and all human beings, namely the man, Christ Jesus. But there's a multitude of mediators between the man, Christ Jesus, and all men. And that multitude of mediators is that which we call the new covenant community. For as the scripture says, we are ambassadors and apostolate in behalf of Christ. And we beseech the world in his place. So we are, even though Christ is the only mediator between God and all of humanity, we are mediators between Christ and all humanity. We are his apostle, we are his sent ones, his reps. As the goodness of God is extended into his creation through the one man, Christ Jesus, for once a year and only once a year, the great archpriest alone enters into the Holy of Holies with the blood of others. This great archpriest entered once and for all and forever into heaven's Holy of Holies, not with the blood of others, but by his own blood, having secured eternal redemption for all of the universe. So we have a, in the scriptures, and especially in Hebrews, we have a then, a now, and a one day, then he became sin for us. Then he went into the Holy of Holies. Then he was crucified. Now we live in the resurrected Christ in the time in between. And we have a celebration. It's called the Lord's Supper in the time in between. One day this great archpriest will come and bring the good thing of the liberation of all creation and the transfiguration into glory of all of humanity, regardless of the brand of their transgression or sin, because God did not impute their transgressions to them, however shocking their transgressions or the transgressions of other people are to you and to me. There are two kinds of sinners in this world today, and Paul made a very clear reference to them. One has sins that are right out there, Everybody sees them, they publicize them, they put them on social media and say, did you see what they did? You see what he did, you see what she did. Their sins are open, they're right out there. There's another kind of sinner, though, whose sins follow them into judgment. They're secret sins, they're judgmental sins, they're self-righteousness, they're interior arrogance. They are sins that are far more egregious and evil, and they follow them into judgment, Paul said. So be careful how you judge anybody. Because we're all sinners, and we're all reconciled to God because of the radical change of situation that was brought about then at the cross. Something we preach about now in the time in between while we wait for the one day when he will come. Our pierced priest will make an appearance. He made his first appearance and was pierced. He makes a second appearance pierced and shows Every eye will see him, every tongue will acknowledge Yahweh to be Yeshua, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will willingly, worshipfully, adoringly genuflect, and every eye will experience his salvation. Every eye will see him, and every person, all flesh, will experience his salvation says Isaiah 40 and verse 5, quoted in Luke 3, 6, with the word see meaning to experience. And so as the scripture says, we're ambassadors of Christ or on behalf of Christ. And so we are mediators between Christ and all of humanity as he is the only mediator between God and man. And Jesus Christ made us a kingdom of priests to God, even his father in Revelation 1 5 and 6, priests by their, by their very vocation and in their task are mediators. They are mediators of a sort, we could say, as representatives of Christ to all men. 
They are not a special ecclesiastical sect of special people that are apart from the laity, so-called, and the commoners. They All believers are priests. We are a kingdom of priests. Don't let anyone take that away from you. We are made a kingdom of priests to God our Father. Again, priests by their very vocation and task are mediators of a sort because they represent all men to God in intercession through the man Christ Jesus as ambassadors or an apostolate or an embassy of representatives of Christ to all mankind. We can say without fear of censure or correction that all the members of the New Covenant community are called and equipped to be the mediators or agents of the good things which have come already with the great archpriests coming. God does extend and must by a necessity of his own essence extend his goodness into all things. And he has done so through the man Christ Jesus, the great archpriest who has come as an archpriest of good things, that goodness that's extended into all creation. So priests by their vocation, and we're all priests, men and women both, in their task, in our task, we are mediators and representatives of all to God in intercession through the man Christ Jesus. And we can say, and I say today, without fear of censure or correction, and when I say without fear of censure or correction, I mean from the Lord himself. I don't care about man's censure or correction. I don't care about the gossip and slander of people. I've heard that in my ears for 45 years as a pastor, and I have absolutely no attention to pay to it any longer anymore. I don't have the time for it. I only have the time to please my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I can say without fear of censure from him. I can say without fear of rebuke from the Lord himself that we are, as members of the New Covenant community, mediators between Christ and all humankind. As members of the New Covenant community, we're called and equipped to be mediators or the agents of the good things which have come already with our great archpriest, with his coming. For it is said that the very heart of Hebrews, now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come. We become agents of those good things. We are the agents of it, the representatives of it. We could even say the dispensers of it, the announcers of it, the proclaimers of it, those good things. We are agents of those good things, mediators of those good things to the world. In the, help, the helpful description offered by Lonergan, we become, quote, agents of beneficence and benevolence, agents of beneficence, beneficence and benevolence. That's God's goodness. We become this in act and in action, as well as merely in name and potential, when the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ for the world, that is, for we are lovers of all mankind. And the love of Christ controls us when the Holy Spirit who was given to us pours out that love of God in our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. Sometimes, if not most of the time, if not all the time, when we don't even ask for it. When the Holy Spirit pours strength into our inner man, that Christ may dwell at home in our hearts by faith, that we together with all the saints may comprehend the incomprehensible. Know the love of Christ that passes knowledge means that we comprehend by the strength given to us by the Holy Spirit, we comprehend the incomprehensible. We understand the impossible to understand love of Christ, which surpasses human, natural, scientific ways of knowing. That's Ephesians 3:16 to 19, incidentally, if you want scriptural anchorage. Consequently, that the new covenant community becomes agents of God's beneficence and benevolence, his goodness, the goodness by which his very essence of love is extended into all that he's made in Psalm 145.9. What did he do when he created 
everything he created. And each day that he created, he ended that day by viewing and surveying what he had created and says, it's good. It's good. And when it was all done and mankind capped that creation, he said, it's very good. God extends his goodness into all things. The goodness that he intends to extend to all of humanity of all times and all creation, visible and invisible, are the good things that have come through his great archpriest, Jesus Christ. Again, Psalm 145.9, good verse to memorize, contemplate, and hang on your fridge. The Lord is good to everyone. You might even find when you go to your fridge that this is such a satisfying verse that you forgot what you went to the fridge for. And you might even do that every day for a long time and lose some pounds if you need to. Not saying anybody needs to. Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to every... I have meat to eat, food to eat that you don't know about, Jesus said. I'm finding out that's the key to health. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all that he has made. Psalm 145.9, God is good to everyone. He extends his saving mercy to all. It's up to us to realize that we who have been awakened to the reconciliation that God wrought in Christ have been granted the astounding privilege of being participants of that compassion, partakers of that mercy, announcers of that reconciliation, proclaimers of peace, preachers of the good news, the agents of God's goodness. And being agents of God's goodness also means being givers of material goods as we are able to meet those who have need. Verse John 3.17 Because we are called to, quote, do good to all people, especially those of the house of faith. Galatians 6.10 So there's a lot of ways to bring the word and the, mes- the message and the ministry of reconciliation. We can be absolutely certain that God's goodness, the omnipotent grace of God, another way to describe it, will reach all of his creation and all of his creatures, including the supra-rational beings called angels and rational creatures called human beings. We have the privilege now, and it's a standing now. It's a now that lasts until one day when Christ comes. It's a now that began with the then of the crucified Christ. We have the privilege now of being the agents of that divine goodness between the then, the act of God in Christ at Calvary, the first appearance of our great archpriest, his once and for all universally and everlastingly efficacious offering. We have the privilege between that then and the one day of the second appearing of our great archpriest when he appears without having to deal with sin again, with salvation. Then, when he offered himself at Calvary, and that's what we do today, we remember his death until he comes. In this time in between, we recall solemnly his death until he comes. We look solemnly. That's why sometimes happy Memorial Day isn't really cutting it. We'd have to say solemn and happy Memorial Day. Today, the Eucharist is a solemn and joyous occasion. Solemn in its recollection, joyous in its anticipation. Do this in remembrance of me until I come. Until I come. So between the then and the one day is the standing now. And God gives us this Lord's Supper to partake of. This is the most meaningful thing Christians do in their lives. Besides the intake of the word itself in the Holy Spirit is the celebration of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Solemn but joyous. In fact, really, that's our livingness in this world. Solemn but joyous. Serious but happy. And so, we can absolutely be certain that God's goodness, the omnipotent grace of God, will reach all of his creation 
all his creatures from the supra-human angelic beings to the rational creatures called human beings to the animal kingdom to the vegetable kingdom to the all creation of God we have the privilege now of being the agents of that divine goodness now between the then the act of God in Christ at Calvary and then and one day of the second appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ and so Jesus Christ happens to be the same yesterday then in his crucifixion is what that means and now which means throughout this extended time in between and into the ages to come that's the point of one day when into the ages to come begins at his second appearing called the parousia but the parousia really is a an event that includes his first and second appearance the parousia his arrival upon planet earth is the coming of Christ as a great archpriest of good things that have come and that are also yet to come today as he lives in the new covenant community through the holy spirit and into the ages to come we give a lot of attention to the then what happened at at calvary we give a lot of attention to the one day what's going to happen we have to give a little more attention to the in between the now where the holy spirit awakens people one by one where god the holy spirit regenerates people awakens them evokes faith in them when he sees fit to do so not when you persuasively cause someone to believe but when god thinks it's time he wakes up someone to faith and that's the way it works it may have happened while you were witnessing to them but don't take credit for it don't get arrogant don't get wise don't be a wise guy or even a wise ass because there is a wise ass in the bible it was balaam's donkey incidentally so don't accuse me of being vulgar or autocratic for that matter now then the act of god in christ at calvary now the presence of christ in the church by the holy spirit one day the great appearance of our great god and savior our pierced priest every eye sees him every knee buckles willingly before him every tongue acknowledges openly and adoringly and worshipfully yahweh is yeshua to the glory of god the father every eye sees him and for an eye to see him is to experience his salvation and that's one day so we look solemnly at the then his death we experience the now of his resurrected life in our livingness and we anticipate with joy unspeakable the glorious appearance that is yet to come then he offered himself at calvary today he lives in the new covenant community via the holy spirit and into the ages to come the one day when the one day comes and future world breaks in on this world jesus christ is the same yesterday today and into the ages to come in hebrews 13:8 which will be ushered in at his second appearing as our pierced arch priest hebrews 9:28 Now the f- the fifth gear before we go right to the communion is what I call Calvary is coming not the cavalry Calvary is coming you hear people say the the cavalry is coming the cavalry is coming and that's because they watched old movies it's a dead metaphor now cuz people don't watch westerns they watch stupid rom-coms whatever they are and I'm uh, they they don't watch the good old westerns where the the wild indians have surrounded the wagon train and it looks like it's all over for the wagon train and all the people on it and the men and the women and the children and the hostile apaches are ready to scalp you and your people are saying hold on to your hair and all of a sudden the ca- you hear a bugle in the distance what's happening the cavalry is coming Now you say that to somebody today the cavalry is coming and they say what the hell do you mean by that because it's a dead metaphor a metaphor is when it is a metaphor that's still mindlessly used when it's when people don't relate to it anymore 
But the cavalry is coming used to mean, don't worry, some form of human agency is going to intervene and help you. It's going to come and rescue you. A bunch of people are going to come and rescue you. The government's going to come and rescue you. That's the biggest lie that ever existed. The, somebody's going to come. The cavalry. I'm going to say today, change that up a little bit. Calvary is coming. That which was done then in Jesus Christ is coming for us all. The universal impact of the cross at Calvary, not cavalry. Notice there's a difference. Cavalry is, a, is the, horse, the horsemen of a military organization. They still call it the cavalry. But there is the Calvary is a mountain called Golgotha. It's also Golgotha. It's Skull Hill. It's the hill of the skull. Calvary is coming for us all. The old and even now dead metaphor that men use is the cavalry is coming, usually meaning, again, some kind of saving relief is coming for people under imminent threat who are experiencing some form of predation or depredation. And I will say not that the cavalry is coming, but I, because why? Because cursed is anyone who trusts in the flesh and who makes flesh his arm. Anyone who trusts in the flesh, whether it's associated flesh, institutional flesh, governmental flesh, or even military flesh, if you put your ultimate trust in that, you're under a curse. But blessed is the man and the woman who trusts in the Lord. And that's Jeremiah 17, 5 and following. I'm saying Calvary is coming. I'm the new Paul Revere. Calvary is not the British. Oh, they're coming, but Calvary is coming. That means the saving impact of what Jesus did on Mount Calvary, the hill of the skull, is coming for us all. The guess who may have sung that the new mother nature is getting us all. The splendid lady come to call. But I say the new man, Christ Jesus, is getting us all, and that in fact, he's already got us all. He's got us all. And no one can snatch us out of his nail-scarred hand or out of the Father's hand with whom he is one. Is the Father's hand a scarred hand? If he's one with Jesus Christ, and if Jesus Christ gives us eternal life and no one snatches us out of his hand, and he and the Father are one, then you may be surprised one day when you see the Father that you may see a scarred hand or something like that. In seeing the Father, you and I are going to be quite amazed. That's the reason now for our attentiveness towards 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21 in connection with Hebrews. That's why I taught it. That's why I brought it. The love of Christ controls us, and we are ambassadors, envoys, representatives, mediators, if you will, of Christ. God himself, who is love, who is this essential good, is making his appeal to the world through us. Be reconciled to God, for he who knew no sin was willingly made to be sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. This gives fuller, richer, deeper, wider meaning to the declaration, one died for all. Once a year, only one, the great archpriest, went into the holy of holies. Once and for all, one died for all. One great archpriest entered into the holy of holies of heaven. That entry of the holy, the holy one into the holiest place of all is the crux of history. It's the then that is being brought to all mankind as saving impact. It's the one man, Christ Jesus. The one who died for all is Christ the one man. To this end, we're urged not to receive the grace of God in vain in 2 Corinthians 6. We are to receive this grace from God, the word of grace that builds up and conveys to us the inheritance of the saints in light. It's called the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, in Romans 5.15. The grace of Christ Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8.9 which extends to all, panton, last word in the Bible, panton, not amen, 
Panton, all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be not to you all and not to that guy who thought he ought to put to all the saints to make it exclusive. Maybe he was a Calvinist. It says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be to all. Last word in the Bible, all. First phrase in the Bible, N-R-K, in Christ. First phrase in the Greek text of the Bible, N-R-K, Christ. Last word in the Bible, Panton. Whole message of the Bible, in Christ all. In Christ all. In Christ all. You can't extend goodness better than to put someone in Christ. To be in Christ is to be the new creation. Christ is the archpriest of good things to come. Don't let anyone talk you out of the fact that he is the elect one. He's the only one that God made a reprobate. He's the only one who became the rejected by God on the cross of Calvary. When they viewed him as rejected by God, they were right. He was rejected by God. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him and that the blessedness of Abraham, which was justification and righteousness and life, would come to all mankind. And it comes streaming through the cross of Christ. That's what's streaming today. And so, in closing, as we approach communion, to this end, we don't receive the grace of God in vain. When Paul said that the grace of God toward him was not in vain, he spoke of laboring more abundantly than all the apostles. Not Paul, though but the grace of God that was with him. 1 Corinthians 15.10 The grace of God toward me was not in vain. I work more than all the rest of them, the rest of the apostles. I labor more than all of them with the labor of love. Yet not I, the grace of God that's with me. <laughs> the grace of God that was with, that's with me does the work. That's astonishing in 1 Corinthians 15.10. When Paul said that the grace of God toward him was not in vain, he spoke of laboring more abundantly than all the apostles. That doesn't mean, the way I read that, doesn't mean that he labored more than each of them did. I think it means, and it seems more clear in the Greek text to me, he labored more than all of them put together. But it wasn't him, but the grace of God that was with him. And that grace extends to all. It's the grace that establishes the heart in Hebrews 13.9. It's the grace administered to us by the Spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29. It's the grace which we work in that works in us in the field of harvest under the direction of the Lord of the harvest. The grace of God with us laboring, doing the work, and we laboring only by the omnipotent grace of God at work in us. God himself in us willing and working toward the Lord's gracious purpose. And what is that? The salvation of all people. And all people coming to the full knowledge of the truth. You've already come to salvation. You've already been saved and you know it. Now it's God's will that you come to the knowledge, the full knowledge, the epinosis knowledge of the truth. The truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. That's what church is for. 1 Timothy 2.4, Ephesians 4.13. And Ephesians 4.21. And so, when we receive this grace, we labor for imperishable bread, not perishable. For an imperishable paycheck, not a perishable one. When we receive the grace of God and not in vain, we do what Karl Barth said when he said this, Coming from the table of the Lord, which is where we're going right now, coming from the table of the Lord, it, the new covenant community, cannot fail to sit down with the rest, the rest of the world, with sinners at table. We have solidarity with the world. You might not like that because you might feel special and holy, 
but we have solidarity with the world as a reconciled mass of humanity. We are with them in that. We have solidarity with the world. We do not have conformity with the world. We do have solidarity in that we're all the same. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same mass of objects of God's intense and incomprehensible love of God in Christ Jesus. Some just don't know it yet. Some haven't opened the sealed letter. So we're the living epistle. We're the letter already opened, already the seal is broken in us. So we have solidarity with the reconciled world. When we get up from the Lord's Supper today, we will sup with a world that still has to know that it's reconciled to God. Follow after peace with all men because you are in solidarity with all men. But also follow after sanctification which sets you apart within the mass of humanity and gives you the message of reconciliation. And so there is an ethic that comes with our realization of our reconciliation. But it's an ethic not of law, but of love and the law of love. It's an ethic not of the letter of the law, but the spirit of life. Again, as we approach the communion, we have solidarity with the reconciled world, but not conformity with it. For we follow after peace with all men, but we also follow sanctification, without which nobody will see the Lord in us. So please follow the lead of Bruce and the ushers today as they take you to the communion elements. And I have a couple more things to say once we've gathered together with the elements. Carry on.
We selected Mansions of the Lord and then the Sergeant McKenzie because today's memorial service and communion service correlates with our national holiday of Memorial Day and thought that would be appropriate. We've come together to eat the Lord's Supper. Incidentally, the bread is gluten-free. The wine is unfermented. That's for your health concerns, but it's also because that's true to the form of the scriptures. Jesus is represented by unleavened bread because of his sinless nature of his humanity, and it was unfermented wine to give a sense of the sacredness and purity of his life and his blood poured out. So we've come together to eat the Lord's Supper. It's called that even in the Greek text, Kyriakon Depnon, the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.20. It's to celebrate the new covenant community's unity with our heavenly head and Lord. It's to walk the king's highway, which he graciously permitted us to walk. It's a road soaked with his blood. It passes through the torn curtain of his flesh. This is a time of common recollection, solemn recollection, and of common expectation, joyous expectation. It's the celebration which the Lord has left to us to commemorate the then of his death in the crux of history and to anticipate the one day of his second appearing as our great archpriest. He has left us this to be celebrated with solemnity but also with joy. It is the celebration that he left to us, so simple and yet so profound, just like the Lord himself. He left it to us in the now, the ongoing, standing now of the present age in which we live, in which we live not to, for, by, or from ourselves, but by, to, for, and from him whom God raised from the dead. Jesus Christ, the one who died for us and the one who lives for us, who is in our midst, who moves among the lampstands, who walks among these aisles, who is with us when two or three are gathered, who is in us. We do this in the now, in the day in which he intercedes for us in this time in between the then and the one day when God will be all in all. It's fitting that we do this on the weekend that our nation calls Memorial Day for this is the ultimate memorial. The older you get in the Lord, and by that I mean the more mature, the more you appreciate this moment, the more this moment becomes profoundly significant to you. As Jesus said, I long to eat of this with you. This celebrates the truly ultimate sacrifice the sacrifice of the Lord who became the slave, the king who became the subject, the eternal priest who became the slaughtered lamb, the judge who became the judged, the commander-in-chief and lord of the armies called Yahweh Sabaoth who became the frontline soldier who died on a foreign field, killed in action, in an action that secured a freedom called redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and our reconciliation while we were still God's enemies. And so in 1 Corinthians 20, 11, 23, for I receive from Paul, and I speak for myself, I receive from Paul what he received from the Lord and passed on to us all. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, 
broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Notice it was broken, torn for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the then until he comes, the one day, until he comes. When they went out from that event, they sang a hymn, and we'll do that too as we exit today. Let's sing this hymn, please dispose of your cups in a mannerly way. <laughs>